We are uh, wrapping up a series called Facing Your Giants. Giants. We've been looking at how these giants are so big. See, giants, they're in our lives. They're those things that are bigger than we are able to handle on their own. Giants, they're real. Giants are intimidating. Giants are there when we go to bed at night and they're there when we wake up in the morning. Giants are those pieces that almost seem insurmountable. But giants have a great thing for us. You see, giants can also be opportunities to see God at work. Giants are also ways for us to be able to grow. In fact, they're gateways to growth. This series, we've looked at giants of insignificance, opposition, commitment. And today our giant that we're gonna look at is a giant that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. It got King Nebuchadnezzar driven out of his kingdom. It got Peter to deny Jesus, not just once, but three times. This giant allowed Judas to get hung into a tree. And this giant got David in bed with another man's wife. You see, this giant has gotten people fired. It's gotten pro players hit in the mouth more times than I can say. It's also gotten them fined hundreds of thousands of dollars that we wish was ours. But it's a giant. It's a giant that can cause you to look down at others. It also keeps us from admitting when we're wrong. It makes us refuse to ask or extend forgiveness. We despise it in others but yet we have a hard time accepting and realizing it in our own life. You see, we detest it in others, but God detests it even more. In scripture, he says that it's one of those things that he hates, a haughty heart. And that's what David found out the hard way. You see, as we've been looking at David's life, this giant struck David in the hardest of ways, and it's the giant of pride. It's possible, or is it really possible to climb so high? It's a great question. Is it possible to stand so tall and to be put on such a pedestal to feel like you have your life in such good order that eventually you begin to think more highly of yourself than you should? Is it possible? See, David had never been higher. His leadership was unparalleled. His armies were unbeaten. His boundaries were unending. His people were unwavering. If you look at it, what a contrast it was since we began this series. See, David was just this shepherd boy. And then from being a shepherd boy, he was this young man that was hiding in caves to be able to hide from Saul who wanted to take his life. He had never been lower at that point, but yet at that point, he was never stronger. He was never stronger at that life because at that point, he was strong because he needed God. He needed God to defend him. He needed God to care for him. And he needed God because he needed to seek refuge in him. Now, a few dozen years later, we see David has never been higher in his life. 
nor has he ever been weaker. See, his life had just changed dramatically. Maybe he climbed so high that he no longer needed God. You think that's possible? Is it possible to think that we can be that successful? So successful that we don't need God. We never get really, I think, that good. I don't believe we ever become that successful. And I don't think we ever get that far that we don't need God. But I believe that pride has a way of convincing us of that case. That pride has a way of so deceiving us that we begin to think more of ourselves than what we really are. So let's get back to the story a little bit. We pick up David's life in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Not only has David been at the highest point possibly in his life, he is at the highest place of the city. He's on his balcony and he's overlooking all of Jerusalem and all of its beauty. But it was a time when he was not supposed to be there. You see, at this time, he should have been with his men in the battlefield. He should have not been where he was. He was not supposed to be alone on his palace roof. It was at a time when he should have been looking up to God, and instead he was looking at Bathsheba. Let's just check it out a little bit. Would you follow with me in 2 Samuel? In the spring, when the kings normally went out to war, you see, let me just stop there for a moment. During that time, the kings and all of the countries would go to war in the springtime. It'd be pretty nice to be able to calculate your wars and say, every spring, war, okay, every fall, going to take a little bit of it out. Winter, we kind of hang low. Um, but it's not quite like that. But in the spring, the reason why they went to war is because after the rains, the grasses grew so it would feed the horses. Also in the spring, that's when vegetation was most well, it was everywhere, and so the soldiers didn't have to get resupplied because they could actually find and feed themselves on the way to the battlefield, and they would have sustenance on the battlefield instead of having to get resupplied. So it was really a supply chain thing. That's a little side note. It was also during this time that we see in Samuel chapter 10 that God actually told David, you were supposed to be at war. You were supposed to be with your men. So let's get back to the story. Then David sent Joab, his servants, and all of Israelites. But David stayed where? In Jerusalem. You see, that, that decisive victory came when David led battles at the end. He was not supposed to be there. He was supposed to be able to lead his men to a victory. But Israel really hadn't had a victory in a few years. Oh, they had won the battle, but it was never really a decisive victory because David had stayed home. And on this particular day, at this particular time, David, literally, it says in scripture, he woke up from a nap. <laughs> Sounds so good, right? He's up having a nap on his balcony. He wakes up and decides to go for a stroll. Oh, you can just imagine the evening, right? It is warm. The air was great. The evening was beautiful. And Bathsheba, she was hot. And so we see what happened at that point. In 2 Samuel 11:2, while he was on the roof, he saw a woman, and she was bathing. She was very beautiful. So David sent his servants to find out who she was. 
A servant answered, that woman is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That was enough for David. That was it. He should have turned his eyes and dismissed his thoughts, but he didn't. So he took the next step on the slippery slope he was on. We see it here. 2 Samuel eleven four. 4, follow with me. So David sent messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. When she came to him, he had sexual relations with her. If you're a kid here today and just want you to know, this will be a little PG-13 this morning. Ding, ding. Um, just forgot to tell you. Um, <laughs> pastoral care. Um, so <laughs> if you want to talk about it later, schedule, just call. Um, David, in this part, did a lot of sending. You see, David does a lot of sending in 2 Samuel 11. He sent someone to find out about Bathsheba because he wanted to know a little bit more about her. He sent messengers to get her, and then he had sex with her. At that point, if you don't know the rest of the story, just to fill you in because of time, David and Bathsheba, they, in the biblical sense, she got pregnant. She went home. She let David know that she was pregnant. David then sent a letter to Joab. Remember, Joab was leading his army while all the Israelites were at war, where David was supposed to what? Be. But he wasn't. So he was with Bathsheba. Um, so David then sent this letter to Joab to say, send Uriah the Hittite home. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Uriah the Hittite. If you want to do a simple thing, you can just look at it in the Bible or Google it up on your Bible gateway, however you want to do it. But Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. See, David had about 50 to 70 mighty men. These mighty men had stuck with David through thick and through thin. They were the ones who would go to battle for him. When he was thirsty, they were the ones that snuck in and got water out of the well and took it to him. They were the ones that went with him when he was trying and had the ability to kill Saul that helped cut off just a piece of Saul's robe. They were the ones who would go into battle at any moment, at any time with David. So don't think, David might not have known Bathsheba, but he certainly knew her husband. So David sent for him. And then he sent Uriah a gift. In that letter, he said, oh, and he arrived, and Uriah is, what do you need, king? I'm ready to do anything for you. And he tells Uriah, go, and, go home and take a bath. And spend some time with your wife. You remember, Bathsheba's pregnant. So David is trying to set up Uriah to go home and then sleep with his wife. Therefore, she can say, oh, look, and I'm pregnant now because you slept with me. And then they would hide their affair. But that didn't happen. You see, remember I told you that Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. That mighty man was a man of character. In fact, Uriah never went home. David's servants came to him and said, Uriah will not leave your doorstep. Uriah is right outside your door. So David said, Uriah, why haven't you gone home? Why haven't you been with your wife? Why did you not bathe? I've given you this gift. And Uriah said, if my men who are on the battlefield can't have what they want, then why should I? You see, Uriah was a man of character. So David got all angry and ticked off and began to grab another letter. And he sent Uriah off the next day with this letter. This letter to Joab. 
So he sent the letter to Joab and it said, put Uriah at the front of the lines where the battle is the heaviest and then pull back. So David sent Uriah to his death. All because he wanted to get some. How David's life had come to such a change. David had become a snake. But isn't that what pride will do to you? Isn't that what pride will do? You can climb so high, become so successful that you think you don't need God and it is just a matter of time before you fall. It's so sad how pride causes each of us to continue down a path that we know will bring heartache. It's too bad that David didn't deflate his ego just a little bit sooner. It's too bad that he didn't dismount off that high horse that he was on and should have been where he was supposed to be. Maybe if he would have done that, he would have avoided this balcony blunder. But of course, none of us has to worry about that, right? None of us is on a balcony. We don't have any blunders. We're not full of pride. We can identify with David in certain things. We can identify when he goes and kills the giant with slingshot. We can go and understand when he's hiding in a cave from a guy who's supposed to kill him. But can we really identify with this? Can we identify with that pride? Oh, I think we can in our small ways. You ever been at that restaurant where it just seems like the service sucks? like a vacuum, and it seems like the waiter or waiter never or waitress never come, and all you want to do is say, how do I even get somebody to get me my food? You ever been that entitled person at the ticket counter at the airport, and just seems like your plane is late, the ticket person won't go, your flight is delayed, and you've got to change it, and you're the person going, and just blowing up. Or maybe you're the person who sat there and you're at your parents' doctor's appointment and you call the doctor an idiot. That could just be me. But the other part of it, you could also be that parent who was sitting in a teacher's meeting and you blow up over the teacher. That could have just been me. Or maybe it's just that you're driving on I-205 because it's stinking Oregon. Seems like everywhere in Portland it takes an hour to go anywhere. Just to go to McDonald's down the street. Now it takes 40 minutes to get to the church and it's only five minutes away. But that's just the way it is. So you, somebody pulls in front of you. It happened just yesterday. Somebody pulled in front. That's kind of like Mike word. George said I can't cuss on stage. So there you are. Pride, man. It'll just kill you. So understand, this message is really for me. Because you see, pride so often can hinder us. It's so often hurts us. The story of David and Bathsheba is certainly one about wrestling with temptation and lust, but it's also every bit as much about the attitude and the danger of power, position, and pride. Many of us may think that we have and treat people well, or maybe we treat them poorly, that we treat them in a way that we shouldn't, that we treat them in a way that really is hindering them. You see, granted, I think that narcissism, narcissism is all over our culture and pride is a ignition switch. Or maybe it's vice versa, but I do believe we have to be careful. You see, I think that David could have used these words that we find in Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then a crash. The bigger the ego, 
the heart of the fall. So why do we need to protect ourselves from pride? Because pride leads to relational disaster. You see, every relationship is in jeopardy when pride isn't at check. All of them, our work, our friends, our family, and especially our relationship with God. So what are we to do? I believe that pride destroys our relationship with God. You see, in 2 Samuel 11, there's no mention of God. There's no mention all the way until the very last verse where we see this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. See, as chapter 11 is coming to a close, it's beginning to sound like a storybook ending. You see, Bathsheba shed some tears over the death of Uriah. She marries David. Everything seems to be moving along. And they move into the palace. They are teasing each other as they prepare in the nursery. And all things just seem to happen. But instead, there's this prophet. You see, a prophet is one who hears from God and speaks to the people. This prophet, Nathan, comes and he presents himself to David and he confronts him in his sin. And he says this, that God opposes the proud. And we see in James chapter 4 just how that is. See, in James chapter 4, we see that God opposes the proud. In Proverbs 8.13, it says, I hate with a passion pride and arrogance and crooked talk. In Proverbs 16.5, it says, God can't stomach arrogance or pretense. Believe me, he'll put those upstarts in their place. You see, maybe one reason God hates pride so much is because it causes each of us to fall so hard. You see, through Nathan, God basically says, David, I gave you a chance. I gave you so much. I gave you everything. Why have you acted in this fashion? Why have you done this great evil? You see, pride destroys our relationship with God. David responded to the prophet Nathan with just these eight simple words. I have sinned against the Lord. You see, in Psalm 51, David's heart was broken over this, and he cried to God and said, against you, only you have I sinned. You see, essentially, pride is an independent spirit. Pride is that independent spirit that says, I don't need God. It's that spirit of, forget you, I'm just about me. I can make my own rules. I can live my life on my own terms. And at that point, we become egotistical and self-centered and self-absorbed and full of our own perceived self-importance. You see, pride destroys our relationship with God and pride ruins my relationship with others. Pride will just ruin us. Look at what it says in Proverbs 13.10. Pride only leads to arguments. You see, pride causes colossal problems. Colossal problems in the workplace, on sports teams, with family members, but especially in marriages. Always, always pride will destroy your home when someone gets too big for it. You see, country artists Brooks and Dunn nailed it when they said in their song, Husbands and Wives, 
This is what they said. It's my belief pride is the chief cause in the decline of the number of husbands and wives. So let me assure you, if the Bible says it, and it says it in country music, then it must be true. <laughs> you see, pride will kill us. Pride also blinds us, or me, to my true self. At some point, I know that one of you is asking, well, what about good pride? Is there ever pride that we should have? Is there anything like, like should there be a good kind? Well, absolutely. I think there is a, definitely a good kind of pride. I think there is self-respect. I do believe that we should have dignity, that we talk about having pride of a job well done, or having pride in our family. But I love the words that Paul used when he spoke about pride. When he said, if I'm going to boast, I will boast in Christ. You see, there is a good kind of pride. But we're not talking about that today. We're talking about what happens before we can boast in Christ. It's that bigger, badder, and better than type of pride. It's that pride that says that I'm bigger, badder, and better than any of you. It's that part where we don't think about anything else but ourselves. It's that pride that is so egocentric that it blinds each of us of our need for change. And I think to the possibility that you could ever be wrong. How many of you have known somebody like that? Just look at Proverbs 26, 12, where it says, there is more hope for a fool than for someone who says, I'm really smart. It is so sad to think how pride can so deceive us. So let's get back a little bit to David. You see, that's exactly what happened in David's life. He was so wrapped up and is so wrapped up in himself that he doesn't look to God. He doesn't need the warning. He doesn't see what has happened. He is so blinded to the fall that he's about to take. But how do we also avoid those same balcony blunders? And I'm not talking about lust or one of those different pieces. It's the balcony blunders of being on that balcony of pride that thinks we're so much better. Well, let me just share with you. First, I think we have to come clean with pride. We have to admit it. We have to confess it. And of course, if you can't do that, maybe that's a good indication that you're prideful. But the problem with pride, it's just like a root. And it goes down so deep. And it's not easily pulled up. The person who says, I'm not a prideful person, I'm pretty humble, should probably get a second opinion. For me, I would say you should ask your wife or your husband and your kids. If they tell you, that's great. If they refuse to, you better pray. You see, it took David a long time to come clean. I love what Max Lucado said. It took David a year. It took David a year to come clean. It took a surprise pregnancy, the death of a soldier, the persuasion of a preacher, the probing and pressing of God, but David's heart finally softened and he confessed. Second Samuel 12, 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
You see, pride will cause you to keep sin a secret. Have you ever heard the quote, we're only as sick as our secrets? You see, David was pretty sick. Psalm 32 says, when I kept things to myself, I felt weak, deep inside. I moaned all day long. Day and night, you punished me. My strength was gone as in the summer heat. That's what David spoke of when he was reflecting back on this time of his life. So let's personalize it a little bit. What secrets are you keeping? Do you feel sick? Do you feel loaded down with guilt? Are you listening to the sound advice of others? How's your marriage? How's your relationship with others? It's amazing that here in America, it seems that things are changing so fast. It seems that most American couples are having fewer kids. Most Americans are not even getting married. They're just living together until they can figure it out. It seems that our American culture, as Americans, we have fewer friends than we've ever had. We have fewer children. Yet there's one thing that we're doing better than anybody else. You know what it is? We're building bigger houses. It's crazy. And I think the reason for it is connectivity. We all want to be connected. We all want somebody to be with. We all want relationships so desperately and we're crying out for it. But yet there are things that are keeping us from it. So we're trying to mask our behavior with so many different things. Yet we are feeling all that much more empty. And I believe one of those things is a giant of pride. And we need to come clean with it. The next is we have to choose humility. Humility is not putting yourself down, but it's really putting others first. You see, why do we need to choose humility? Well, it's so we won't be sick. It also, that God won't be against us. Just look at James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the what? Oh, say it. God opposes the? But gives grace to the what? Oh. You see, in David's case, God had to humble him. He had to take him down. He had to break him down. And David would tell you that if he had to do it all over again, it is far wiser to choose to come down off the balcony than it is to get knocked off. So let me speak to you about David's life. I would challenge you to read 13 and 14 of 2 Samuel, but to summarize it, David's life, yes, he was forgiven. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. But because of those few dozen years that David chose to ignore God and fill himself, he jeopardized his whole kingdom. David's home was a mess. His son Ammon raped his daughter Tamar. Absalom wanted to overtake his kingdom and wanted to kill his father. David's home was a mess because he never dealt with pride. He never stopped and said, God, I need you as part of my home. But when he did, things didn't get better soon. It took time. That doesn't mean that David wasn't forgiven. 
but he did have to humble himself. You see, humility is one of those pieces that allows us to be able to submit ourselves before God. How many of you would want to hang out with somebody who was selfish and all full of ego and only talked about themselves all the time? None of us. You may even have somebody like that in your life. Do you want to hang with them? No. You would rather be with somebody who was humble, somebody who cared. In fact, in Proverbs, it says twice, which is a verily, verily, which means you need to pause and listen. Before honor is humility. So Paul's advice here in Romans, I think, is really good. When it says, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. So you may remember in Luke, in Luke where Jesus had been invited to a meal at a Pharisee's house. And at this Pharisee's house, everybody was jockeying for position to sit at the head of the table. And Jesus he just had to stop and pause and kind of tell everybody, go sit at the seat that is not important. When the host comes to you, he may say, friend, move up here or to a more important place. Then all the other guests will respect you. You see, this whole thing kind of ended up happening because everybody was unwilling to just sit where they were. They had to sit at the front so they would be more important than the others. I don't think Jesus cared where everybody sat. But I think what he really cared for was their attitude. When he had to say, before you take your seat, check your attitude. It's always the right choice. Before you think that you're bigger than you are, check your attitude. Before you think that you're not humble or you are humble, check your attitude to make sure that's true. How are you serving others? How are you serving your family? How are you caring for them? When we do that, it allows us to compare up, not down. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't look up. It is so easy to look down on others instead of up to the Lord. Jesus had a parable about that found in Luke 18. And this is what it says. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus has these words. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week. And even give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Obviously, that Pharisee suffered from the terrible eye disease. That eye disease is pride. Four times he sat and prayed to himself. Four times in this brief little parable about his prayer, he talked about him and not God. 
He compared himself to everybody around and the guy next to him. See, the paradox of these two men is pretty simple. One was looking up, but his attitude was condescending. The tax collector was looking down, but his heart was reaching up to God. Pride really is a matter of the heart. And then we see that Jesus draws the conclusion and gives this promise. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you want to walk around full of yourself, just compare down. If you want to look at really how much you think of you, oh, we can always find somebody to look down upon. But if you want to walk in humility, just compare up and keep your eyes on Christ. You see, in this Christian life, the more we lose, the more we win. And that kind of brings me to the last point. So how do we do it? I believe that we need to copy Christ. Philippians 2, 5 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. It's real easy to say, copy Christ, but let me just show you very foundational or something very simple. You see, Jesus was not concerned about status or position. He was not concerned about privilege. None of that mattered. He taught and modeled humility. Even at the Last Supper, his disciples were a little bit, again, jockeying for position. You see, the room was full of these proud disciples a little bit. And it was a no-host room. That doesn't mean that there was open bar. What that means is that there was a no-host room, meaning that there wasn't anybody cleaning their feet. There wasn't anybody taking their coat. There wasn't anybody who was there to make sure that there was some order there. So the disciples walked in, and they were wondering who was going to do it. But if you know the story, you know exactly what happened. You see, Jesus, he just paused. He took off his outer coat and he took a towel and he wrapped it around his waist. He took another and put it on his arm and then filled a basin full of water. And in John 13, 5, it says what he did. He began to wash his disciples' feet. And then he said these words. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. You know what? It takes humility not only to wash another's feet, but it takes humility to let someone wash your feet, to serve another in that fashion. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus humbled himself. You see, Jesus is the way by which we both know and see God. And Jesus, that means Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who knew all, humbled himself and got on his knees and began to wash the muck and mire off the disciples' feet. I love that story because I believe that's what every single one of us need. I believe that that's what every one of us is dying to have in our life. That we are so entrapped by the muck and mire of our day-to-day -day lives that we ignore the giants that we face. The giants that say that you don't matter. The giant of envy and fear. The giant of pride. The giants that so easily entangle us and that seem too large to face. 
But those giants, they're just sin. <laughs> they're just sin. They're that sin that stops us from being fulfilled in our life. They're that sin that makes us buy the lie that we're better than we really are. But yet we're all together as one. One church in one accord. A people that is broken. A people that needs the cross. Because on that cross, sin was taken and nailed there. And it was broken. So maybe today, we need to pause long enough to pray. Maybe today we need to stand and praise. To praise the God of heaven and earth who is there to remove the muck and mire from our hearts, from our souls. So we're going to pause for a few moments and we're going to sing this song. I would ask that you stop and look at yourself. Is there a giant that you need Jesus to slay in your life? Is there a giant that you need to surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ? If there is, surrender. Give that giant over.